Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode four of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm really excited to introduce you to Richard Moore. Richard is a former Deputy Director General of AusAid. In this role, Richard oversaw all of Australia's development programs in Asia. He was also the senior gender advocate, focusing on gender violence and increasing women's political and economic opportunities globally. Richard has also been a ministerial advisor in the Australian government, as well as Australia's alternative executive on the board of the Asian Development Bank. Nowadays, Richard is a popular voice on international aid, and is a favourite at many of the aid conferences held in Australia. Thank you so much for being here, Richard. I'm glad to be here. Now, I first heard you speak when I attended my first ever aid conference, which was the Australasian Aid Conference back in 2016 at ANU. And you just had the audience transfixed. It was it was quite amazing. It was a fantastic address and, and so thought-provoking, and I think everyone really got a lot out of it and walked away definitely challenging a lot of their conventional views on aid. Do you remember that specific talk, or do they all sort of blur into one? No, I think I know the one that you, you're, you're referring to, but, you know, the funny thing is I have a different perspective on that. I was trying to do exactly what you um, have said, challenge people and and. Be a bit provocative. I think that's sort of one of my roles as an agent provocateur. Uh, but I sort of felt that um, 10 minutes later, everybody had just gone back to their usual default position. And I, I think that's one of the problems in our business. Um, we don't seem to get very far in terms of pushing forward the boundaries. We revert to past practice very, very fast. So ultimately, I was a bit disappointed at that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I've been getting more strident, not less. <laughs> that's the best attitude to have, isn't it? <laughs> It's funny how you how we remember it differently. I I definitely walked away feeling very challenged, but you know also as you said thinking, well how do I institute these changes in my work because aid's such a big bulky bureaucratic industry and it is hard to do these things, but hopefully we can touch on some of that today. You recently wrote an article for the Sydney Morning Herald that was in April of this year, and you said that Australia must confront its aid failures. So can I ask you, what have been our biggest aid successes and what do you count as our failures? Okay, if I get lost in this, drag me back to the, the, the question. So if we, if we start with successes, I mean, I, I, I think it's absolutely true that um, we don't talk enough about successes in, in, in development more broadly. So, so I always situate what we do in, in terms of aid and development cooperation within the bigger picture of what's happening to the world. And, you know, clearly there's extraordinary successes over the last 40, 50 years. And people, a lot of people are basically unaware of how much transformation there has been. And on basically any indicator, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, life expectancy, infant mortality, uh, GDP per head, poverty, uh, all of these have headed strongly in the, in the right directions. There's, it's very hard to find indicators where uh, we've gone backwards consistently. Um, so the overall story, I think, is, is absolutely fantastic. 
And I think it's true that development cooperation has actually played a really important supporting role. Now, the critics will say, hey, hang on. None of this progress in development is related to aid. Aid's been such a tiny amount of the whole, and, you know, you've been off doing all sorts of things that don't really matter. The big transformations have come out of changes in economic policy and and uh, the, the efforts of developing countries themselves. Don't kid yourself, aid officials. This is nothing to do with you. Um, I think that's just plainly wrong. Um, I, I think that... This has been the most significant era of development um, in world history, and I don't think it's been an accident. It's come about through through, um, an international system that we've built in the post-war period that has reinforced the value of cooperation um, and certainly has promoted economic policies that uh, encourage integration. And there's, a, there's downside with that, as we're seeing now, and, and upside. But uh, it, it has been a most phenomenal era of, of material progress. And development cooperation has been in the background of that, uh, encouraging those processes. Uh, and so it's very hard to get the attribution there to prove it conclusively. But um, I, I think we're now embarked on a very dangerous counterfactual where uh, a lot of the things that supported the development uh, progress of the last five decades are breaking down uh, right now in front of us in real time. And I don't think we can sustain this progress if we allow that to happen. Uh, and a country like Australia, I think, needs to be right at the forefront of uh, preventing that and pointing to a better path. And I, I don't think we've really uh, grasped that yet. Uh, so, so that's at a very macro sort of uh, level. Uh, at, at a more sort of meso level in the middle, I think Australia has done some pretty great work. Uh, in, um, in in several locations in, in Indonesia, which again people don't appreciate. It, you know, it's it, it's the fourth most populous country in the world, and it's right on our doorstep. Um, and it's a complex challenge keeping a country as vast and as diverse as Indonesia together, uh, and for it to have continued to grow and cut poverty and improve living standards whilst also going through a democratic transition 20 years ago was phenomenal. And all the way through that, we've been able to be there and play a constructive role, um, supporting the policymakers grappling with these big, big issues. So I think that's been an extraordinary achievement, which is not well understood. Um, In the Mekong region, You know, uh, a generation ago, the countries in the Mekong region were at war and intermittently had been at war for hundreds of years uh, and now have evolved peaceful means of cooperation. And those had to be constructed. They didn't come about by accident. They had to be built. So you needed people with vision. You needed the structures around political and economic cooperation. And then you needed the stuff to happen, which actually was the lure. Getting greater connectivity around regional power and transport infrastructure, you know, bringing in external resources to supplement local resources for education and health. These were things that enabled countries uh, to, to work together. Uh, and I think that's been, uh, that's been an enormous uh, uh, step forward. Uh, and in the Pacific, there have been um, lots of challenges, but, but some great achievements too. And probably the Ramsey exercise in Solomon Islands is one of the most important because it, it was regional, but Australian-led, um, dealing with a, a, a very difficult conflict situation, which could have easily degenerated further into, into full-scale civil war. Um, and we took a whole-of-government whole of region approach. It was joined up. So you have defense, you have diplomacy, you have development, 
Uh, and we and we took a a long term patient approach, and uh, that's paid paid big dividends. Um, so I think lots lots and lots of uh, successes for us to be proud of. But the big failure that I was talking about uh, in in the Sydney Morning Herald piece, um, and and. The sub-editor turned it into failures. I, I had actually just talked about a singular failure, which I think is the very big is the big one. And that's that I think that as development people, we spend so much time talking to ourselves. So we gather in conferences, hundreds of people, and we talk amongst ourselves. And we have a language and a lexicon which is quite specific and full of acronyms and abbreviations and and talk that excludes people and we don't go out and we don't we don't talk to our critics we don't talk really very much to the 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 defense community we we are very resistant to notions of um you know national interest instead of setting out to redefine national interest in a way that includes and elevates development cooperation. So, yeah, I'm very critical of our insularity, um, and I think it shows in the lack of public profile that we have and the lack of political influence. We don't have many serious friends in the parliament, uh, and this is one of the reasons why development policy and development resourcing have been so weak for so long. Wow, what a fantastic answer. You've touched on so many things there that I want to sort of keep going with, two in particular. So firstly, you said that the factors that have enabled our aid program to succeed are breaking down at the moment. And from what I'm what I'm getting from that is that some of those factors are the fact that there is relative peace and stability in our region at the moment with some very notable exceptions. Our aid program has really capitalised on the rebuilding, reconstruction sort of era. And nowadays, how do we remain relevant if, if the, you know, countries don't need us in the same ways that they used to? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that it, so it's partly peace and stability, which I absolutely uh, agree. It's a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite for development. If you haven't got that, you know, you, you, you're not at the starting point. And so... Uh, yes, that's created a conducive environment, but it's been more than that. That is, that is not enough. It's, it's, it's essential, but it's not enough. Uh, you've then got to have the platforms for cooperation, and you've got to have trust and confidence. So I think we understand these things in, in conventional foreign policy. We understand these things in a couple of big domains. We understand them in security policy, because that's what people spend so long on. And that's understandable. You know, if, if the whole point of security policy and defense policy is to avoid conflict. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you put in a lot of effort into that. And clearly also on the economic side, you know, we've put enormous international effort into trade and investment liberalization to allow, you know, uh, resources and knowledge and to a lesser extent people to move around to advance e uh, economic opportunities wherever they are and through that to, to, to generate more wealth and, 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 and to spread it. Uh, and we'll return to some of the issues around all of that later, I'm sure. Um, so, so huge effort has gone into those two and we've got lots of machinery uh, that, that advances those. We've also got some machinery around the development stuff, but I'd argue um, a very intensive period of, of institution building in the post-war period. All the all the UN machinery, uh, you know, the UN High Commission for Refugees and for Human Rights and UNICEF and UNDP, and we might criticise those platforms, as we might also say the, the, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, but they've played a pretty big role in pulling countries together, in organising policy sort of coherence and, 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 and uh, consensus, and then bringing money in to support development. Um, I, I think we're now in an era where um, 
countries are, and it's not just the United States, but certainly the United States at the moment is the prime international exemplar, uh, where countries are wanting to go it alone more. And I think these other mechanisms are going to break down. And even if they don't, they, they're not going to totally collapse. But when people walk into the discussions, their briefing and their policy positions are going to be more defensive. They're, go, they're, not, wanting, they're not going to want to be out in front. They're not going to be uh, striving for big new uh, agreements. Um, they're going to be thinking about themselves primarily. And I think when you, if, if that's the prevailing pattern, whether it's trade uh, discussions or whether it's cooperation on health security or on taxation agreements or a whole bunch of other stuff, um, I, I think uh, it's, it's just going to, it's going to undermine the basis on, on which we work together. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's very hard to know where that will take us, but it's not going to take us into a good place. And the other point that you mentioned before was about our failure to confront our critics and the relative insularity of this sector. I imagine, well, I know that those critics exist at multiple levels, from the community level up to potentially even the multilateral government sort of level. Is this partly an issue with feedback loops in our work? Like, are there enough mechanisms for us to receive feedback from our critics? Well, like I said, I, I just don't think we talk to each other. And I think that's partly um, just an unfortunate fact of history. And I think there's particularly interesting history in Australia where I, I characterize it as a schism. We sort of went into our own world and we've become trapped there. And now getting out of there is is really quite difficult. As you say, there's, there aren't so many um, uh, existing linkages and forums and, and systems whereby um, the assessments, our assessments of, of, say, foreign policy more broadly or security policy or econ international economic policy uh, are fed into, uh, you know, uh, broader uh, evaluations of, of those efforts and likewise with us. And so, I mean, I... I, I, I I think it was fascinating to see what happened with AusAid. As it, as it grew, uh, I think there was a consciousness that because more money was going in, um, you know, there was going to have to be better assessment, better evaluation, better reporting. And if you look at the reporting going back, you know, 10, more than 10 years, so there was, there was additional reporting by the Australian National Audit Office there was a 2011 um, independent review of, of, aid of, of development effectiveness. Uh, there were a lot more evaluation studies. There were parliamentary investigations, etc. cetera. Uh, there was the OECD reporting. Not one of those concluded that there were systematic problems in the way that we were doing our development cooperation. In all of them, there were uh, uh, modest and moderate uh, recommendations for change to improve things. But all of them basically said, you're on the right track. Uh, there's a few things you've got to do to, to, to make sure you stay on the right track. Um, so pretty good set of report cards. But when it came to the crunch, the, the political conclusion was totally at variance with that. The political conclusion of the new conservative government was this was a waste of time wasn't delivering anything of national significance. Um, it, you know, the, the phrase waste and mismanagement, that was the phrase that was was applied to, tagged to the aid program. There wasn't an evidence base for that, uh, independent of what News Limited had produced in a series of badly written, error-riddled articles. But the political conclusion was very clear. And so that tells me that it's no good amassing more and more sophisticated uh, M&E work uh, if actually um, the people who make the decisions have come to a completely different decision. And the onus is on us uh, to, to get out of this mess. Uh, we've got to get 
uh, a lot cleverer about how we tell the story about what we're doing and why, uh, what it is delivering, uh, and how that um, is advantageous to us as a member of a regional and an international uh, community. And we, we just don't do these, those things very well. You mentioned the Asian Development Bank earlier. You wrote an article for The Interpreter last year, which regarded the future of the Asian Development Bank. And in that article, you said that the, the Western international growth and development model, which has become development orthodoxy, it was under serious threat. And I know a lot of work has been done over the past few years on the future of the Asian Development Bank and other multilaterals, uh, including by the Lowy Institute and, and yourself and others. Can you, can you talk about why that model is under threat and what it might be replaced with? There are different dimensions to it, but, but the obvious starting point is, is China. Uh, China's growth and development... Um, since the late 70s, uh, have been phenomenal. Uh, and it's pulled more people out of poverty than anywhere in human history, and it's done it in a generation. Now, that gives China enormous confidence. And, of course, remember, it's building on an imperial history of several thousand years. And so for it, uh, you know, it's coming off a couple of bad centuries, but it now feels it's returning to where it should be at the centre stage of uh, world affairs. So this has given it extraordinary confidence, but it's also caused many, many, many countries, particularly in Asia, but more broadly as well, to turn their gaze uh, northwards towards uh, towards Beijing. Um, and I think we've underestimated that. So partly, of course, it's just it, it's the economic uh, story, uh, their own success, and then the larger market that that has generated, and the fact that almost everybody who's got something to trade is is selling more to China. There's a real feeling when I move around Asia. There's a real feeling that you know China is where the strength is. And there's a, and even if people are wary of that, there's a feeling of pride that this is a big Asian power, and uh, rightly or wrongly, many people in Asia would rather be beholden to a big Asian power than a big non-Asian power. Now you can argue about the wisdom of that, and certainly you can choose to perhaps remind people that. The last time there was a very major Asian power in the region promising great things, it didn't end so well with the Japanese domination uh, of, of the region during World War, during the first part of World War II. Um, nevertheless, uh, the China story is very, very, very powerful. And people, people are contrasting what China has achieved in the last several decades with what they view the West as having achieved. So, so okay, we can see why China would look like a success story. Then, then, then people might turn their view to, to, to Western countries. And whether we like it or not, um, what they see is, is uh, disarray, uh, indecisiveness, um, and uh, a relative decline. Now, it's quite possible that all of that is overstated, and there'll be many people who would say that's overstated. It's temp, you know, it's temporary. We've been here before. The West will, you know, continue its its ascendancy. Uh, but for people in the region, that's not necessarily the way that they're seeing it. Um, and so they're thinking about the mix of policies, and you know, a generation ago the mix of um, democratic government and, you know, free market economics was predominant. It was, you know, not exclusively so, but it was, it was clearly predominant. Uh, now a different mix is, is, is there um, where China seems to suggest you can 
You can have fabulous economic progress with an autocratic, non-democratic regime in place, and you can have a very strong state that coexists with um, a vigorous private sector. And that's what a lot of countries find attractive. And you can see why the ruling group in particular of a, of a country might find that incredibly attractive because it seems to give them everything that they would want as an elite, um, including massive surveillance capacity, uh, courtesy of our friends at Facebook and, uh, and Google. Um, and, and, and the tools that they've created that then have been adapted uh, uh, locally. Um, so uh, that's the different model. Uh, and, and, and do we need to be worried by that? Well, I, I'd say absolutely, because a world in which those sorts of um, platforms and, and the policies predominate is one which we will find much, much more difficult to navigate and much, much uh, less friendly to our interests. I do find it really worrying when you put it that way, that, that what's appealing to countries might be an absence of democracy and a really top-heavy elite sort of power. And I think that it is, as you've said, because China approaches development very differently. Uh, they seem to approach development as more of a partnership with less of those paternal overtones. Do you see it that way as well? Or, or if not, what other reasons do developing countries prefer to work with China? Let, let's start on, on, the, on, on the last bit. I, I think it's a complicated story and getting this right uh, in terms of our response is also tricky. The attractiveness of, of, of the Chinese development package is not just what's, what's on offer directly, but it's on that tighter link with the rising power and the economic strength. That's the offer. It's bigger than just, you know, a, a courthouse or a, or a parliament or a, or a road or an airport. Uh, but those latter things, and that's where China has specialised, physical, high-profile infrastructure um, that, you know, people can see and can be badged and can be, uh, uh, you know, a, a constant reminder of the Chinese presence. Now, um, to some extent, of course, it's true. I mean, China has got very good at delivering infrastructure. Uh, this, this, you, you can point to uh, problems along the way and you can point to bad practice for sure. But actually, China has spent several decades uh, perfecting the delivery of infrastructure in Western China and has learned a lot of lessons. It's continuing now to learn new lessons and, and, and still has further to go because it tends to import a lot of Chinese workers in a, in a sort of an exclusive arrangement that creates a lot of resentment. Mind you, as, develop, as, as Western development workers, we, we should be very conscious of the fact we have historically done something very, very similar. Um, so, you know, the, 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 there are flaws in their model, but what tends to happen is that China, when China makes a deal, it follows through on the deal, it delivers what it says, it does it fast, um, and it's certainly true that it's not interested in sort of micromanaging the country's uh, sort of what it does with that asset. And we have a history of being overly prescriptive, certainly of micromanaging, and then trying to put a whole lot of conditions around assistance. And, you know, the whole history of that tells us it doesn't work. So um, now might be a good time to shift to something a little bit uh, more user-friendly and a bit more effective with the China challenge. But the, the, um, the point I'd make about, uh, about uh, China is that um, I don't buy this line that um, somehow China, Chinese assistance is um, more altruistic and, uh, uh, you know, comes with fewer strings attached. I mean, please do me a favor. It's the opposite. 
Um, look, they're often supplying things that are highly in demand, particularly particularly for the elites. Um, but uh, what do they expect? Well, number one, uh, they expect countries to pay back loans that are typically at quite high levels of interest, and they're certainly not um, immune from saddling countries with massive debt. You might believe that that they were happy with that because an indebted country uh, then needs to take the views of its its creditor pretty seriously. Mind you, you know, critics would say, well, isn't that what the West has often done itself? So we need to be a little bit careful about that. But countries clearly are, um, are wary. You know, um, all around the region when I talk to people, uh, they're, they're, they're wanting to work with China to get the economic benefit, uh, but they're also wary of a very, very tight embrace where they would be the little guy uh, getting squeezed. So everybody's sort of in a similar boat. And I think that's where a country like Australia needs to be thinking very creatively about, okay, how do we, how do we foster greater cooperation between nations so that if and when we need to, to push back, we're not just doing it as one individual nation, we're doing it as a collective group. Now, China has um, uh, tried very hard, and for very obvious reasons, to um, resist multilateral pushback, uh, particularly on security issues. Um, but uh, I think it's in the combined interests of countries both to work constructively with China, but when there's there's there's, there's um, significant differences of opinion to be able to talk with a collective voice. You said a really interesting line there, which is a great segue into my next question. You said we're all in a similar boat. Everybody is in a similar boat. And at the ACFED National Conference in 2016, you gave a speech where you said, we are all developing countries now. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that point a little bit. Yeah, well, this is this is a thought that I've 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 had uh, recently to try and you know challenge my own thinking and 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 other people's thinking about where we are in in in, in terms of um, global progress and the agenda for the future. And I, I do think we're still locked into old thinking. And uh, you know, I think we just have to drop all this language, this aid donor-recipient language, because that is so inconsistent with uh, where we need to be in terms of our relationships with other countries and in terms of thinking about what the job is, that if we don't, if we don't drop this, you know, it's just going to become a brand that has to be taken off the market. It's useless. In the, in the new world, because by and large, countries have made phenomenal progress, particularly this part of the world. They have, uh, you know, cadres of thinkers and policymakers who are accessing international knowledge and are, you know, um, and they're much more assertive about their own interests than they would have been a generation ago. Um, so an old model that sort of sees us as the, you know, the white saviors who have to come in with aid programs to fix things, uh, this, model, this model is now redundant. And yet it's still actually the basis of a lot of our work across the world. And so I, I think we're, we're in big trouble, um, uh, you know, um, with a failing brand. Um, so when, when, when you... When you look at what the, the rational optimists are saying, so it's deeply challenging. Many of your, your uh, listeners would know of Hans Rosling's work, uh, you know, unfortunately now dead, but has done some fantastic work demonstrating how much progress has been in the last 200 years. Uh, but he's not alone. You know, there have been new 
uh, books by uh, Norberg, you know, Progress, and by Steven Pinker on uh, uh, violence in particular and, and the reduction in, in, in death from violence. And, you know, so a group of people sort of saying, look, things have never been better, which manifestly on a whole bunch of indicators is true. However, um, simultaneously, we're seeing a whole lot of new problems emerge beyond the reach of the nation state. So climate change is obviously one where we're still apparently debating the science when really we should have we should be uh, well past that. Although I guess the good news is that not only have governments belatedly struck agreements that seem to be holding, um, but that the private sector has decided that the game has changed. It is now moving money and technology into, uh, you know, uh, non-carbon-based growth. So we're all facing the consequences of climate change. We're all facing the consequences um, of uh, mobility of people, um, Partly this is asylum seekers and refugees. Partly it is economic migrants. Uh, it's, it's the desire of countries to have short-term workers and repatriate people. We, 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 we have big challenges. Uh, one of the ones that I don't think we've come to terms with yet, but I think is, is huge, is the way in which the big five companies, you know, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, they've now become such important commercial platforms um, and they are dominating uh, commerce and politics in ways that nobody could have conceived 20 years ago. And I think this has redistributed power. There was a very good book a few years ago called The End of Power, which is a great read, but I'd say we're not just seeing the, 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 the fracturing of power. Uh, we're seeing the fracturing and the reassembly of power. And now you've got this small clique of extremely powerful uh, corporations that are um, paying very little tax. They're sucking up enormous volumes of advertising and, and business, and they're exerting huge uh, political influence. We don't have the regulation around all of this. So, you know, governments suddenly have become much less powerful vis-a-vis -vis this tiny group of global oligarchs. Well, you know, that makes us suddenly look impotent. We're, 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 and that's what I mean about we're all developing countries now. We're all facing development problems that we can't solve by ourselves and that require uh, intense cooperation. But at this very moment, the public's confidence in governments to fix this stuff, either domestically or internationally, has collapsed. Mm. You've talked about problems without borders, really, all, all these yeah. issues that, that no country is immune to entirely. A, a major reason I set up this podcast is to talk about some of these private sector issues that you just mentioned, these major companies and, and how really it's a regulatory failure, it's a systematic failure that these companies rather are having the impact that they're having on development. There is, as you said, so much power and wealth amassed there that if we could send that power and wealth in the right direction, it has the potential to have a really huge and positive impact in my view. The other point that you've touched on is the importance of language, which I sort of wanted to ask you a bit more about. I often cringe at myself when I say phrases like developing country and developed country. I, I, I don't use phrases like the third world, but I think that's still pretty common. There's a lot of ways that we talk about development that I don't think serves our purpose particularly well. So how, how do you manage the way that you talk about development and what's the right way to talk about development if there is one? Oh, this is very tricky because the alternatives are often very clunky or very bureaucratic. 
And that's problematic in itself. That just causes massive switch off. So I think for the time being, we've sort of got to be a bit uh, bilingual and uh, be able to sort of talk to audiences on the basis of what they will understand while simultaneously challenging people to move forward and to find new concepts. Of course, the, you know, the, the, the does, does the language follow the concept or vice versa? Who knows? It's, it's sort of a bit chicken and egg. The big challenge for us is to actually move to new ways of working. And, and uh, uh, you know, language will help us do that and vice versa. New ways of working will help us evolve new ways of of, of, of talking. You know, I think in, in, in many cases, we, we sort of know what we've got to do because we've been looking at this for a long time. We've just never managed to do it. And that's interesting in itself. Now, I'm of the view that if, if, if we don't move now, where really this business will not exist in the forms that it does in 20 years. I really think we, 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 we're looking like a dinosaur. Um, you know, and that should motivate that should motivate people in the NGO communities, in the private sector and in government. But as yet, it's sort of a protected it's in a really thick bubble. Um, the air's going out of the bubble, but it's a thick bubble and we're not moving very fast to change this. Um, and I suspect that's because of the nature that it that it is. I, I, I use the phrase, I think, somewhere, maybe the Ackford uh, speech. Th this is, in many respects, a state-owned enterprise, you know, and, and so uh, we haven't caught up with the changes uh, in, in, in the world in which we're living. You know, we, we pay lip service to them. Uh, but if we don't do it now, we're, we're done for. So it's how can we... How can we change those incentives a bit? What what will what will drive real change? I think for the, for for NGOs, it, it it it's coming about already because the market is for them is changing. They're finding it harder and harder to raise money from the public, and uh, I think at the moment many are going down the track of more and more intensive fundraising. But this is actually doing a couple of things. It's saturating the market. It's leading them to sometimes adopt questionable tactics. Um, and uh, it's raising the costs of fundraising, in some cases, dramatically. So then the offer in terms of what, you know, what, what, what we're selling and the price and the benefit, you know, the equation is changing. And again, I think we've, we, we haven't got very long to fix that. Uh, otherwise, people would just say, look, sorry, this is, you know, what you're offering is not uh, very attractive. Um, so, uh, the, the, now, I, I've been obfuscating um, because the language issue is really hard. You know, aid is a three-letter word. Uh, you know, development cooperation, I don't know, what's that? Probably about 15 letters across two words. It's clunky. And nobody knows really what it means. And we haven't been very good at, at sort of explaining that. And so, you know, we fall back into the aid charity mindset all the time. Um, and I'd like to see, I'd like to see ACFID uh, lead on this more decisively. But to do that, I mean, ACFID's a bit like the United Nations. You know, people, including me, can be critical, but hey, hang on. The secretariat, the organization, only has the power that the big guys will give it. So, you know, actually what I'm calling for is for the big NGOs to show greater leadership and to take some more risks and to get out in front. And, you know, sporadically individual uh, NGOs are doing that, but I really think they've got to, um, they've got to present a, a, a better united front. The point I'd really like to finish with today sort of builds upon what you've just said about not-for-profits a little bit, but when we talk about aid these days, it seems that we are often talking about the amount of aid that we give. We really restrict ourselves to that exact number. I'm, I'm not sure what our current number is, um, but we, we talk about who's the biggest recipient of our aid, exactly how much money are we giving them, rather than talking about development effectiveness. And is our aid actually working? So how, I mean, my view is that we need to switch the narrative towards talking about aid effectiveness and less about aid money in really specific 
quantitative terms. What's your view on this? Oh, it drives me nuts. Uh, and it, it's not recent. It's It's been around for as long as I can remember. My entire career, the development community has had a single-minded obsession with the volume of money. And I think I said at that at that DevPol um, uh, presentation back in 16, um, I'm an absolute heretic on this. Um, I am not going to advocate for more money come what may. I think a country as rich as Australia can easily afford to do a lot more. I think the problems that need work require a lot more cooperation um, and that's that's got a cost to it. But you want me to sign up and campaign for some, uh, you know, 50-year-old target that was always a bit arbitrary that year upon year, with the exception of a very brief period, we've moved away from. It just doesn't make sense. And as a political strategy, it's a complete loser. Uh, and one of the problems is, and it goes back, though, to what we were talking about at the beginning, we don't really link up with, with what the critics are thinking. So we campaign religiously for, for more money. Um, and the rest of the international sort of uh, fraternity just thinks, well, they're a bunch of self-serving, single-minded, woolly-headed uh, individuals, and they just write us off because we're not talking policy, we're not talking strategy, we're not talking about big outcomes. We're just talking about what do we want? More money. When do we want it? Now. It's 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 superficial, and we we pay the price for it. And I cannot believe that there's still a very substantial proportion of our community that thinks that's the way to go. Uh, I'm I'm blown away by that. Now. Uh, development effectiveness, well, you and I know what that means. I think we have trouble uh, sort of communicating that. And one of the most powerful bits of writing, I think, in, the, in, in, in our world is, is a, uh, a speech given by the former head of USAID, Andrew Natsios. Um, and uh, I'm struggling to remember. It actually doesn't have a good title, but, this, but the speech is really good. I, I think it's... Um, Oh dear, it's not, it's not coming to me quickly. But but he he really took issue with the bean counter mentality, um, which in the U.S. he he sort of certainly sourced to other parts of government. But I think he argued that um, USAID had internalized to the point where it was becoming counterproductive, and I think the industry as a whole is in real danger of doing that, or well, not just in danger, has done that. So we've now put so much energy into the planning. And then we say, okay, well, we've got to track progress. Of course we do. And we invent these incredibly sophisticated frameworks with multiple indicators, and we spend forever, you know, monitoring and reporting. And I saw this grow inside AusAid, grow from being boutique and, and not very good at the beginning when I first joined, not very good, not rigorous, not systematic, needed a ramp up. And at the end, where it was highly elaborate, very expensive, um, and generated extraordinary amounts of data that people were far too busy to use. And it's like, oh, no, come on, this is uh, wrong way around. Um, by all means, you know, of course, we must. We must track our success. Uh, but then the data that we generate, we must analyze and interpret. Number one, lots of energy. And then we must work out what to do about it. What's it telling us what to do about it? Um, complete imbalance at the moment in the way that we go about that. Um, so I would actually like to see a revolution in the way we think and work. Um, and it goes to these other issues of, you know, what of development cooperation rather than aid. So rather than thinking we've got to design and deliver, uh, you know, something that we, you know, put on the back of a truck and then forklift off the truck and, 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 and um, you know, deliver 
in, in a developing country to how, how can we build integrated processes that intimately involve uh, people in developing countries with counterparts from developed countries, so to speak. Um, and, yeah, our design at the moment doesn't do that. It's far too prescriptive, too, too, too rigid. Um, uh, but, but to move to that sort of model, you need, a, you need a complete mindset change. And we haven't convinced ourselves, let alone people in the parliament, that, uh, that we need to do that. Um, and, and, you know, how do we get there? How do we get from where we are, which is pretty old-fashioned, uh, to where we need to be, which is very, very different. We, and we need, a, we need a pathway for this. And who's going to do it? Now, you know, our, unfortunately, I think our development community is very weak. Um, academia, in terms of academia, well, you know, we, we, we've had a big step forward with the Development Policy Centre, but we have lots of other little centres. I'm not convinced that's all joined up in, in a way that might push us forward. I, I just think it's far too fragmented and, and, and I, can't, I can't see that there's much forward thinking going on. Um, DFAT has made good strides the last five years after integration, but has a long way to go and is, is not yet willing and able to push the envelope. The press, very poorly informed. We have a very, very thin press when it comes to writing on, on international issues from a development perspective. Um, and then the NGOs, as we've discussed, I, you know, I, I think I have also been quite weak. So this, to me, suggests that the institutional environment is, is uh, not conducive as it is. And I, you know, I rack my brains. I try to think, how do we catalyze something quite different? How do we get the NGOs to work with the private sector, to work with the foreign policy establishment to create some new thinking? I, I don't think it should be that hard. I mean, for example, wh why don't the major NGOs, the top 10, who have money? Now, uh, you know, they're under pressure. I, I get that. But they're going to be under more pressure if we can't, you know, renovate this business. Uh, why can they not sponsor a series of really significant intellectual pieces of work that become agenda setting in terms of future development? Why is that so hard? Sporadically, you'll see individual organizations doing something. But it's, you know, we could be doing so much more. Yes, absolutely. That Wow. That's such a great point to finish this on. And I agree with so much of what you've said. I think once again, I'll walk away from this just pondering for the next week, everything you've said. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful, not just to have you on the show today, but grateful that you are such a, a fierce leader in this sector and you really are catalyzing change. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for the opportunity, it's been great.